people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello everyone, and welcome to the final episode of the year before we settle in for the holidays. To start, our future on Twitter is becoming a little uncertain right now, considering what Elon is doing to anti-fascist accounts, so be sure to subscribe to our podcast feed or to our Patreon if you want to carry on hearing from us. Today, we are joined by our guest co-host, Mark, a friend of the show who has experience in OSINT and investigations in the far right, which works out well because our guest is Michael Colborn of Bellingcat, who has covered the far right extensively and has obviously used a lot of these techniques as well. With that being said, uh, on with the show. Hi, Michael. How are you? No, too bad. Thanks. Thanks for the invite. Uh, thanks for having me. It, it's cold. Uh, I think every, no matter where we are, it's, it seems to be getting cold these days. So yes, I am way too cold right now. It's horrible. <laughs> um, so just to get straight into it, you're the lead on on Bellingcat monitoring, which investigates the transnational far right. Mm-hmm. Um, how long has that project been going on for, and what have you some of you, what have been some of your big investigations? So with Bellingcat monitoring, it's a, a project that we've had. We've we've had it in in various, uh, I guess, iterations since uh, since 2019. We actually started it in 2019, uh, looking very specifically at at, at a few countries. Uh, it was Ukraine, Armenia, and uh, Kyrgyzstan actually, in terms of not just the the transnational far right, but looking at more anti LGBT. Uh, ideologies and, and, and things like that, and over time, over the course of what 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 was actually sort of a, a short term project in 2019, uh, we kept our far right monitoring work going under that banner for a few years, and then in uh, early 2021, uh, we we. Uh, it, it, for the, the monitoring project, we turned it for, for, for a two-year period, uh, thanks to funding from the, the Swedish Postcode Lottery uh, Foundation. We turned it into a two-year project that not just investigates the transnational far right across Central and Eastern Europe and beyond, but also delivering trainings and seminars on digital investigative techniques on how to research the far right. That's actually something I've been, uh, frankly, much busier with over the last few months than I have with my, you know, what's been my my more normal or day-to-day life as as a journalist, as a researcher, is obviously producing articles and investigations. But uh, I've uh, worn a bit of a different hat sometimes, a lot more over the past few months, uh, going to a few different places across Central and Eastern Europe to give trainings uh, to journalists, researchers, academic scholars, and others in terms of a uh, how to how to use some of the techniques that we do to to research the far right that's interesting and 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 why is why is this training become such a big part of your work it's because well i think in general open source investigative techniques i mean yes we use the term OSINT, open source intelligence a lot and we actually you know I, i joke sometimes with my colleagues because a lot of us you know don't like using that label as much anymore well because of the word intelligence in there which you know sometimes can suggest something that it's not it might be euphemistic to insist on something like digital investigative techniques but whatever whatever we're going to call it uh on the one hand you know it's very it's very clear that no matter what the topic area use open source research is something that is becoming you know more and more popular something that's becoming more and more widely used by 
you know, more mainstream or more quote unquote legacy journalists. It's something that even if they don't use the term open source research to, to describe what they're doing, it's something that a lot of people around the world are doing, whether they're journalists, whether they're well, citizen journalists or, you know, journalists by profession, whether they're activists or whether they're members of their community, uh, no, no matter what, using open source research techniques, again, whether they even call them the, that or not, to hold power to account. I think you see that with all sorts of research related to the far right, whether it's from people who will define themselves as, as activists or be much more explicitly political or partisan or what they in what they do to you know more of the work that, that we do, which is you know more removed from that, but using and promoting some of these open source research and investigative techniques. So on the one hand, there's been very much a resurgence in not even a resurgence, a surge, you know, in in the use of some of these techniques. I mean, you look at, again, legacy, quote unquote, legacy media outlets like, say, the New York Times, Washington Post, or, you know, other media outlets, whether in, in the United States, uh, the UK, France, I know is another country more recently, Germany, and countries large and small, media, legacy media outlets large and small, are increasingly opening up, uh, you know, whether they call them open source research units or digital investigation units, digital digital investigation teams, what have you. And so there's an increasing recognition of the power of some of the techniques that now I, you know, I almost take for granted because they use them all on a day-to-day -day basis now. But on the other hand, it's... Yeah. It's increasingly clear to me that even though, I mean, you know, this sounds corny, but everybody, yes, has the skills to do the things that we do. And I think that's what's so, frankly, democratizing about doing this kind of research is that, yes, anybody can do it. But in terms of some of the some of the tricks, I even joke and I call them tricks and trainings, you know, like there's the I've, I've used, uh, I think, in multiple presentations, I've used that uh you know, an old Simpsons clip of, uh, you know, um, one, one of the older episodes where there's a Brad Goodman, the, the charlatan, uh, you know, self-help guy, <laughs> where he's like, there's no trick to it. It's just a simple trick. I've used that canned line in a few presentations, trainings now, because I use it ironically as a joke and because I like putting stupid jokes and Simpsons references into what I do. But there's, I use it with an element of seriousness. Like, guys, you all actually know how to do this sure sometimes you can step back and you know look not quite in awe but look at me like how did you figure this out and when we show them they're like okay some of these are actually tricks they're simple tricks they're tips they're techniques sometimes they're things to save time sometimes they're things you didn't know that you could do with with google with social media platforms with telegram with anything like that and it's become you know, much more apparent to me, especially over the past few months, uh, that th there's still so the, you know, the world of open source research investigative techniques, digital investigative techniques, it's still so untapped. There's still so, there's still so many things that people who are already, you know, interested in holding, holding truth to account and ho holding power to account people, you know, there's so many techniques that we do on a day-to-day -day basis that, you know, like I said, maybe somebody like me, because I do it all the time, I kind of forget that not everybody else does this all the time. And it's just become increasingly important to, 
you know, spread the knowledge around basically to empower as many people, as many communities, as many journalists, as many activists, whoever, empowering as many people as we can to, you know, create some good in a world that sometimes isn't always that good. Uh, one more and I'll pass on to Mark. Um, I think uh, from my experience of doing some of this work a little bit, is that you end up, and especially doing research for our book, is that you end up reading a lot of quite objectionable, you know, kind yeah. of distressing material. And I wondered if you had any kind of like headline tips or tricks even about how to like keep yourself sane um, <laughs> whilst reading very horrible stuff. Right. Because, you know, when, yeah, when we were in the middle of the book, I, you know, it was in the lockdown pandemic, everything was stressful anyway. I got really into, you know, kind of using various far right terminology, ironically at first, and then, you know, it kind of became a habit in my language mm -hmm. and I had to, I got called out about it and had to kind of, you know, we, yeah, we cleanse a little bit, you know, move on. Well, yeah, <laughs> you got saying the word, you know, saying the word cook over and over and over again. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah. It wasn't a great kind of yeah. thing. What, what, what do you think? I know for me, especially over the past few years of focusing on the on the far right, not just the last few years, but I mean, it it it, it seems like it's been going on for longer than that. I I really increasingly realized several years ago that uh, you know I had to change a bit of my approach to how I was researching and monitoring and investigating the far right. Uh, you know, at first I was you know, d like dunked my head in and was, you know, 100% kind of almost all the time constantly checking these, uh, you know, different telegram channels, always needing to be on top of every single thing, not really even necessarily taking that much time off or time away from my phone or, or, or my laptop. And I realized over time, even though I wasn't necessarily exposing myself to you know insanely violent content you know i was looking at day-to-day -day stuff on far-right telegram channels not necessarily you know going through the world you know telegram type worlds or reading manifestos all the time or awful live stream videos i wasn't doing stuff like that and so i kind of mm -hmm. i think maybe even a bit naively i think i thought because some of what i was looking at in reading was almost like so low dosage that I never thought it would or could add up. And I realized over time that, that it does. And I mean, I should have realized that and, you know, but well, nonetheless, here we are. And so over the last, you know, more over the last two years, I would say, uh, I've started to do, to prevent myself from say getting burned out at, looking at a particular far-right group or a specific topic, a specific country that you get really invested in, you know, for an article, for a specific investigation, just out of, out of, out of interest or out of feeling some sort of moral need to understand something very, very specific that is going on. I've started to do things to, you know, separate myself from having to look at this stuff literally all the time. You know, for example, I, with Telegram, I have, I, I well, now with Bellingcat, I, I have, I have, you know, different mobile phones. So I have you know, two mobile mm -hmm. phones, like a more personal one and a more work one. And for the most part, I keep all, like, I keep 
you know, far right related stuff, work stuff away from my personal device. Like I, I can look at Telegram on it, but I don't have notifications on it, for example. So I've done that to, that seems like really, maybe even really small and petty, but it stopped me from, you know, it's, it's allowed me to mentally take a bit of a break away from even just a few hours from some of the things that I'm looking at. Uh, I've learned more to compartmentalize my time where I'm not, uh, you know, where I, I make time to, like, even within doing research on the far right, you know, even within, I mean, sometimes it's, it's a sad reality that you can spend so much time re researching a specific individual, digging into a specific topic, a group, a country, and uh, the way to, you know, the, the way to deal with that is to focus focus on something else on the far right. So I think no, and it's also key to know kind of where, not just where your triggers or where your limits are in terms of researching the far right, in terms of digging into what can be horrible stuff that does add up over time. It's knowing when, learning to listen to yourself more when you need to take a break. Like I said, you might think that because what you're looking at is, you know, not that, maybe it's not in, in, in far right terms. It maybe isn't as extreme. It's not explicitly violent. It's not as, maybe some of the stuff is not as ugly in terms of, of hate speech. But even so, you're getting exposed and you're exposing yourself to, to an increasing amount of just everything, just hate, you know, hate, hateful ideologies, hateful messages. It just builds up over time, and you have to recognize sometimes when you need to step away and reminding yourself that it's okay to step away for even a few hours, a few days. You know, the world, I almost had to tell myself at a certain point, the world is not going to stop just because I don't know what this particular far-right far movement has been doing <laughs> 24 seven over the last three days. Like you can pick some things up, you know, a few days later, you don't need to like, you know, I don't need to know on Saturday afternoon that this far right group is posting something that could be useful for my research on Saturday afternoon. I can figure I can find it on Monday morning, you know, and, and take, take some time as, as personally invested as I am and as passionate as I am about the topic and as you as a researcher or, or whatever label you're going to give yourself, you have to understand that it's okay to step away sometimes. Yeah. And I think also like the way oftentimes when we were, when we were writing about kind of far right internet jokes and humor, you know, we started treating that humor as if it was funny and yeah, you, know, and you have to take that distance and be like, actually, no, this is really horrible and offensive and yeah, not at all funny. Like, because yeah, and it, it, yeah. It, like that, it's almost, Maybe, maybe that like you almost have to. When you start to, it, like you said, even even ironically at first, using or referencing some other vocabulary when, when it creeps into. I mean, yes, yeah, sure. We probably also all have friends who are interested in researching the far right because it's you know some of the kind of people that we are. But like when it creeps into other conversations with people who don't really want to hear about the far right all the time or what you're specifically investigating. Like, yeah, yeah it's it, when, yeah, if your vocabulary starts to, you know, if you start to 
you know, use some of the same terms, even if ironically, if you almost start to see see them in places that they're not, if that makes any sense, like when it's on your mind, when some of these things that you're digging into are on your mind that frequently, because I'm there a lot. So even on like a daily basis, like, okay, I think I've looked at this this telegram enough because I tried to get, I thought about all this crap when I went to go get lunch or get a coffee. So now I'm not going to pay attention to that for the rest of the day. I'm going to, I'm going to look at this other far right thing, which is not burrowed into my head. I think yeah, it's, it really is a matter of, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but it's a matter of balance and not going too far into immersing yourself 24 seven into this world. Hi, Michael. Uh, it's great to have the opportunity to speak to you. I've been uh, following your work for a few years now. Uh, just on that uh, point around around the uh, kind of mental hygiene, I suppose, mm-hmm. I'd just add to what uh, Michael's already said. That I think it, it's, it can be very... Telegram's kind of designed in this hyperlinked way where you can just, you know, click from one one chat or yeah. channel onto the next. So it's it's quite an easy space if you're not quite conscious and careful about it to just end up sort of hanging out in a sort of in a quite um you know untargeted manner um so you've always got to sort of remind yourself okay what am i trying to do here i'm 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 seeking out certain information for a reason i'm not i'm not trying to engage with the arguments or the kind of ideas that are getting thrown around here right like i'm not Uh, i'm not here to have fun and hang out right yes exactly um so yeah, a question for you, Michael. Um, your your most recent investigation that was published um, the end of last month on the on the Bellingcat website, and uh, two investigations before this have all focused on uh, a guy called Robert Rundo, who's uh, mm-hmm. one of the founders of the Rise Above movement. Um, and I've I've seen you, you personally mentioned on some of uh, Rundo's Telegram channels. So yeah, he doesn't like. He, yeah, <laughs> he doesn't. Yeah. Uh, so. Unsurprisingly, it's, it's, it's great. Yeah, it's good. It's good to be popular, I guess. <laughs> so I kind of I wondered if you could. Uh, he's a figure that's popped up uh, previously on on this podcast. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, you know who he is um, and, and why it is that you've decided to focus on him. I suppose. I think with him, it's you know I I'm always torn, and I was especially torn you know with 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 this most recent investigation. On the one hand, uh, for those who don't know, he's, and I don't need to get too much in, into the backstory of who he is, uh, you know, he's a violent far-right extremist who was the founder of the so-called Rise Above movement uh, and has been in legal trouble with different appeals being won and lost in, in his court case over, since uh, his initial arrest for violence against uh, protesters in, I think, believe it was in 2017, but he was first arrested, I think, in 2018 for, you know, for, uh, for, for violent acts at protests in, uh, in California. And, you know, he's, he's somebody who, he, he ended up going to, yeah, once he lost his, uh, sorry, I'm just going to backtrack there. Um, is it there's Rondo basically in in 2019 he, the court case he, he was on trial for two federal charges that could have landed him up to 10 years in prison uh, the charges were thrown out in 2019 and 
you know, he, I don't know exactly during which time frame, but, you know, sometime in late 2019, very early 2020, he left the United States legally uh, and basically went to hang out in Eastern Europe. And so he tried to, he, he was somebody who was, who I'd, you know, two, two and a half years ago, he was somebody I always had a bit of an eye on in turn because he just, because of how, you know, how public he was and just the, the extent of the international, you know, networking that he was trying to do. And the, the irony when, why I said at the beginning, you know, of, you know, just after your question here, the reason why I feel kind of torn writing about him, especially now is because he's not nearly as important or consequential as he would like to be, or, you know, honestly, even as sometimes the attention I and others have given them, it's, it's, you know, it's because it's, it's not always entirely deserved. He's, he's somebody that, you know, he's like, I, like I said, in the most recent investigation, he's somebody that has seen his popularity on telegram dwindle. He just, he does kind of have a very, you know, cultish, hyper-masculinist following, but he's, he's not exactly, you know, bringing in, you know, tons and tons of followers anymore, because I think even people within, within the far right, uh, you know, are kind of tired of his shtick. You know, he's somebody who I think is, uh, you know, uh, but, but the problem with him, it, among well, many other problems, I guess, is I think people on the far right, international far right, a lot of people are able to see through him on a personal level. He really does come across as somebody who is not very intelligent. Uh, the only kind of skills or intelligence that he does have is this sort of ability to propagandize and bullshit to people. And so that's why I was torn writing about him and identifying his, you know, his location, his whereabouts for the third year in a row. Although, so that's on, that's the one side that, you know, I was, I was, if I'm torn in half, that's one half is me asking myself and, you know, even my colleagues and editors asking me, watch, well, I asked myself before I even got to that point, why even bother writing about this guy? The, the flip side is that earlier this year, his charges were, uh, they were reinstated. Uh, so he, you know, his charges were thrown out in 2019. The U.S. attorneys appealed. And then in 2021, the charges were reinstated. But then Rundo, his attorneys tried to appeal to the Supreme Court. So that took like a year. And then the Supreme Court rejected it. And then so the charges, all his avenues were appealed for lost and were law Avenues for appeal were lost. I'm tripping over my words there. And he, uh, you know, the charges were reinstated in earlier this year. So he's basically, unlike the previous two times I'd written about him this year, he is actually a man on the run. He's somebody who's wanted on two federal charges, in theory, facing up to 10 years in prison, who, as far as myself or anybody else has been able to tell, is actually a U.S. federal fugitive. And so this time, because once again, because of his inability to stop posting, you know, I was, I was able to, to find his location, his whereabouts yet again. So with, with Rondo, 
the reason why I think I've focused on him again most recently isn't necessarily because of actually of him or who he is as an individual. It's more the importance of of accountability of like, hey, here is somebody from the far right, a far right extremist who is trying to internationally network, who is facing charges in another country, charges related to violence in another country. What is why why is he allowed to why is why is he able to travel between these countries without getting arrested or getting getting detained? Why does nobody really, you know, in law enforcement or wherever, why does nobody really seem to give a shit? That was my motivation with him. My motivation for having written about him is not because I think he, as an individual, is some profoundly important figure. I mean, the irony is, is like I just mentioned, he isn't. In some ways, he's kind of a pitiable figure, a clownish figure almost, like he's somebody to make fun of. But what he is able to do, what he represents, and what people who come after him who are smarter might be able to do is the reason to focus on somebody like him to to expose him to you know increase the social cost as it were of trying to be somebody that open and public and a wannabe influencer on the far right yeah this is this is like a question like you know people in the uk have kind of been dealing with as well is like journalistic focus is an incredibly powerful kind of thing mm-hmm. to consider when you're writing a story like are you exactly. making a too big a deal about this person than what they deserve. There's a certain cachet in the far right about exactly. being scrutinized by anti-fascist investigators and that gives exactly. a certain credibility as well. So that that's the consideration I had, you know, this time writing about him and, you know, the time that <laughs> maybe more the second time writing about him as well is like, okay, answering that exact question, like ethically for myself, like what is the justification for writing about this specific individual again? And asking, asking myself, okay, am I giving him more oxygen or helping him out in some way by doing this? And fortunately, I think it's very clear that I'm not. And the reason why I think that is if, if you go, like, we all follow, you know, far-right people like him. And we see how these people, when they're written about by somebody like me, when they're written about in media they we we see how they you know how they react how sometimes they they love the attention they post the link to the article to the to the video to the investigation whatever and they you know they they almost you know revel in it and and take some joy in it with these investigations about rundo i think what's interesting is that he the the, the previous two that i've done the one that last year where i uh exposed his whereabouts in Belgrade because he took a photograph of himself in front of some unique graffiti that happened to be the building he was also living in at the time, which is, you know, again, doesn't speak Very to him. Very silly. Yeah, doesn't speak to him being the sharpest tool in the shed. And then this third time around, something actually very similar, just kind of exposing him as kind of an idiot again. What's interesting is that he doesn't share these articles. He doesn't explicitly refer to them. And I've actually seen in some of the, uh, you know, Telegram group chats that he has for some of these art for some of the, you know, like five different channels that he has. If you look in some of these small group chats and 
occasionally have seen somebody try to post a link to, you know, one one of my articles, he actually deletes them. He doesn't want people to see them. And I think that's, to me, when you know you've done something right, really, really right in an investigation about somebody on the far right, is when they don't want people to read it. When they act, when they're when they're not like, hey, look, look, Bellingcat wrote about me. Look, 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 what a big deal I am. When the reaction is, no, I'm deleting, I'm deleting this, uh, deleting any reference to this article. I do not want people to know about it. You know, you've had some success at that point. Yeah, another example of when you force someone to change their behavior in whatever way, like that's yeah. Even if they try to be at, yeah, like even if you try to BS, even if they try to BS and be like, oh yeah, these whatever from whether it's you guys or or activists online or journalists like myself you know where they can bs and pretend that they or you know claim on their channels that they that they basically like the coverage and be like oh yeah thanks for the attention but then you notice that it's clearly had some impact on their behavior and what they post and maybe even tone some things down or you've impacted their their popularity so yeah i think it was the first red flare i think ever expose of this guy, Sam Melia, who was the Patio Alternative Yorkshire organiser. Yeah. And he'd only ever appeared in PA messages as like a disembodied hand in his wife's videos. And we didn't know who who her, her partner was. And then suddenly Red Flare exposes that this guy who has got this long history with National Action and various other far-right projects is mm-hmm. the kind of lead organiser of in the Yorkshire region. And suddenly he's there in all the videos and all the media and all the thing. But yeah, he was hiding his identity for a long time, so clearly... Yeah, yeah I've seen yeah. that too, where they're hiding their identity and then you expose them. It's like, oh, well, I've, I've, I guess I might as well just be out public with this stuff now. Yeah, I suppose I've got another uh, question that relates to this. So mm-hmm. um, I suppose following the, the kind of rise of the, what was at the time called the alt-right, this kind of largely or almost exclusively online phenomenon, like anonymity was obviously a really important uh, part of that for, for the activists. I, I wonder if you think that there seems to be kind of two uh, developments happening in parallel at the moment. The first is that the the far right in countries like the US, the, the UK, Australia as well, is kind of shifting or, or attempting to kind of drag people that have been predominantly radicalised online back into kind of real world organising. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one uh, shift. There's also the kind of, at the same time, the spread and democratization of open source investigation skills. Mm-hmm. Now, I was wondering, is there a risk that as more and more kind of far-right activists' identities are revealed um, by kind of open source investigators, that the far-right begin, you know, this becomes less of a, uh, a less effective tool for opposing them uh you know is it is it the case that they just you know accept this as a cost of a cost of doing business as it were uh and i was wondering if you yeah go ahead i think maybe it maybe at some point that could be an issue but i'm it's it's not something i i worry about too much right now and you know the reason why is because you you look like like you said in places like the united states the uk Australia, other places where they're kind of more intensely trying to drag the online radicalized into 
you know, into real world action, getting photographed out out in public at this, you know, this combat sports training thing at this event or that. I think they, these guys on the far right, I, they are, I think, acutely aware of the risks of of so many of them being exposed. They know, I think, that as even with a relatively relatively small group, that the the more of them that are exposed, the more of them that suffer real world consequences for being associated with the group, like you know losing a job or getting getting embarrassed in local media or regional or broader media, you know all sorts of real world consequences to, to you know to being exposed as being parts of these groups. I think they realize that the more that happens, the less likely they are able to build up even a relatively small critical mass. People are not, you know, you're not going to grow much of a, a really good cadre, a really good organization, if most people, even people who might share your beliefs, if most people are too scared or, you know, they don't, they, they don't want to, you know, put them put themselves in that in that situation of 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 having their identities exposed they know that if they you know if they can't attract good quality people then they're just going to be you know cringe like i mean you look at a group like like patriot front in the united states which i do think is you know a threat in many ways and an issue but then if you look at you know the many (laughs) leaked videos and photo and everything everything that that's been put out you know about them from from themselves you see how you know kind of pathetic a lot of them are like the, this is not a lot of these guys they, they look like a larper army like it's just, these not particular like try to portray this image of themselves of these all these you know scary looking muscle bound dudes when then you look at the videos that they didn't want the public to see it's all these kind of cringy looking guys if that's all you can get if, if, if that's all they can get that's that's not <laughs> that's not good for them but i think they're there that's why what i'm leading to is that they're still hugely concerned about anonymity whether it's you know regardless of of the country for for a lot of these guys and you can see it by by what they post they you know they're I mean, we, we, we see it all the time, of course, where, you know, posts where they, you know, they try to promote their, their group or a specific event and the amount of uh, faces and things that are, that are blurred out, you know, blurred or blacked out faces are trying to obscure as much identifying information as possible. They try to make locations difficult or impossible to geolocate. They're not. Or they try, or they, you know, or, you know, they publish photos or video from a location when it's, you know, they've, they've long since gone, like not like posting a live location or, or anything like that. The, you can see that they're still very, very concerned about that. And, to it, you know, they, the fact that I see all these different tactics still being used, and I even see more, I guess, extreme measures, like I've seen recently, and I haven't seen very much of it. I saw an example of a far right group somewhere, you know, where the, in photos that that they posted online of their you know march through a specific neighborhood to 
in their words, to intimidate anti-fascist activists. I think they were just going around, you know, covering up graffiti and putting up their own graffiti. They blacked out in the photos, even the pictures, even even the uh, their shoes, you know, because they clearly thought that there was some level of identification going to be possible looking at shoes and where faces weren't just blurred out, but they were blacked out. So you couldn't possibly maybe get some, get some hint based on even a blurred photo or, you know, they didn't blur it quite enough when you black it all out, you know, it's maybe a bit harder to tell, but one interesting thing that, uh, you know, that this group did in these photos that, you know, I really hadn't seen before and it took me it, it took me a while to figure it out because I never looked that closely. I, I looked closely at somebody in one of the photos who, you know, they, they, there was something about them. I'm just I'm being very polite here. There's something about them that looked familiar to me, but some of the details that I knew weren't matching up. Like the, in this photo, you know, I couldn't see the shoes of the guy, but he had shorts on. And I could see no no leg tattoos, and I know this guy has leg tattoos. So I was like, okay, well, so it's not him. I'm just gonna skip past it. Then, like a week or two later, I looked more closely at this photo. You know, I used a you know open source tool uh, forensically, and I'm not a photo, you know, doctoring whiz kid. But then when I looked closer, it was really obvious that there had been editing on the leg to hide the tattoos to make, you know, to, you know, the kind of feature you can use to erase a feature in a photo, like you can have that on your phone or something, you know, and it happened to be right at the exact spots where I knew this individual had a leg tattoo. So I was able to figure out it was him in the photo because of what they tried to hide. You know, so the the philosophical point I made and something recently I was drafting up was that like sometimes the the act of obscuring something is actually the most revealing, and this is a case of it. Like you're trying so hard to hide somebody's identity that you actually expose it. So I think as time goes on, you know, and depending on the type type of group or individual or organization that it is they are going to keep trying to do things to obscure their identity. But what I, I really think that a lot of groups and individuals and, and whatnot on the far right, they don't necessarily learn from each other that well. They don't really share information all that well in terms of what is actually incriminating and exposing or not. So you're going to see people just default to blurring faces, but leaving tattoos exposed. Well, thanks. That's uh that's easy to do. And even though I've just said it out loud here, you know, and somebody on the fire, you'd be like, oh, that, 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 I'm just trying not to swear. You know, that guy from Bellingcat, uh, you know, said, said on this podcast, we should, we should do this. We should start covering up our tattoos. You know, some people might do that, but still a lot of the, a lot of these guys on the fire right are just going to keep doing what they're doing because they don't share these things with each other. They don't, because they don't think like that. And, I've been asked before, you know, whether this kind of is a related question, I think. I, I've been asked before whether, you know, whether I think the far right can use some of these tactics or techniques against us, us in terms of the people who write about them, journalists, activists, researchers, even academic scholars, whoever. That's the us there. Can these techniques be used against us? And I always say, 
and I still do now. It's like, okay, in theory, in some ways, yes. But the thing is, they don't actually think that's how it works. These are these are people who really think that when I've written an article about, you know, Rondo or or somebody else and exposing an identity or revealing something about a group with you know different op open source techniques, they think somebody's fed me that information. They think Antifa from whatever country in Slovenia and Hungary or wherever, they think they fed me information that I couldn't have got in any other way. That's actually an accusation I've heard from the far right in both those countries. Like as if I wasn't able to find the information myself that somebody had to feed it to me. You know, they, they don't think like even though like in in the articles that we do where we clearly lay out exactly how we got point A, point B, point C, leading the reader through exactly how I arrived at the conclusion, they don't believe that. They don't believe that this is actually what we do. And so when they when they try the few times that they try in their own minds to use these kinds of techniques, they end up just making a total mess of it, you know, and because they, they don't think that the world works the way that it actually does. So, um, and, and also because, the, yeah, there's just so many things they fundamentally do not understand about what's, why they could be, why some particular photo or video could be damaging for them but in the same position for somebody like me is doesn't mean a thing like exposing my location in, in terms of like the city i live in you know that's not really an open source coup because you know i've, I've said it before like there's thing you know it it doesn't work the same way both ways so it's in terms of you know maybe sometimes especially activists might be worried about the being being doxxed and i think you might obviously i think that's a, a very real concern but in terms of them properly or learning how to use digital research techniques well i i, I think they're a long way off understanding how these kinds of tools not, not even how these tools work but just almost philosophically intellectually how the process of research even works. Yeah, some great points there. I suppose the far right uh, worldview doesn't really lend itself to collaborating with people. <laughs> the other problem that a lot of these guys have, and I'm thinking particularly of Patriot Front here, is there's this kind of constant demand for them to kind of churn out more content, right? And it's kind of a problem for them of, oh, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Every kind of new video or photo that they put out is potentially a kind of weapon that can be used against them. Uh, I do encourage uh, listeners to go and take a look at the Patriot Front um, leaks, I think published by Unicorn Riot. Some absolutely hilarious stuff on there. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty bad. Okay, so unfortunately for all of us, um, you know, Elon Musk is very much in the discourse, in the news, having bought Twitter and is currently dismantling various parts of it that he finds objectionable, um, you know, banning various accounts, reversing bans, deleting Twitter spaces is the latest one, which I find quite funny. Um, and it, But this kind of raises a lot of questions about um, how we kind of gather information how and then how we disseminate information. Because it, it feels to me that as Twitter is, is starting to, well, firstly, maybe it's not going to last that long, but 
if it carries on in the, in, the, in some kind of form that it's already in, um, you know, it becomes kind of easier to gather information because it's a new platform of open source, you know, a new platform to, to, to investigate in which all these people have been let on to post to put up photos and tweet where they are and all this kind of stuff. And at the same time, you know, there's this new rule about not, um, you know, not uh, reporting on live locations, whatever that means. Um, you know, Musk has, has said the plane tracker thing is, is a lively thing, which is obviously not. He just doesn't like it. Um, so I wonder what your thoughts on this whole situation with, with, with Twitter is. Uh, it's a mess, for one thing. <laughs> I mean, it does really worry me how the sort of capricious whims of one man and his, you know, his inconsistent appeals to principle or whatever else, how they just, uh, you know, within a few days, everything just completely caves in and things that, you know, a month or a few weeks or even a few days ago, we thought were beyond the pale or just happening like tweet journalists getting permanently suspended for, you know, posting, posting a link to, you know, like we're posting about, you know, an, a, a non-existent police report or, you know, that that sort of specific nonsense and everything, everything around this fake fear around, around flight tracking. So it, it does, it does worry me thinking, in in general or much broader terms in terms of how one man and as as time goes on in this world this situation is going to be happening again and again where one man and let's be clear it's always going to be a man is in a position of such power and influence where they can they can have really catastrophic impacts on public discourse just because they're mad you know just because they have some far right or far right adjacent people whispering in their ears about a very bizarre interpretation of free speech and why antifa is this global terror menace or wokeness or whatever other buzzwords that that get thrown in there you know as as time goes on i i think you know what? What the this latest fear with Twitter has taught me is you know, just how fragile our discourse and ability to have discourse can be, and how much power some, these companies, these institutions, can have in ways that even though we always knew that Twitter had you know a certain amount of power over you know, the discourse, capital T, capital D, the discourse, the fact that it can be so upended and people's ability to, journalists' ability to share information to, to how it's just being eroded by, like I said at the beginning, the, the, whims of, the whims of one man. So on the one hand, yeah, I worry about where this sort of, these sorts of things are going and the implications they have for political and public discourse in, in different countries. But in terms of like what we at Bellingcat do and how we respond to it, you know, for me, for me, and I think I could speak for, for my colleagues here, it's a matter of standing our ground. Like we are not about to, 
you know, cave in and stop uh, posting about uh, or sharing articles about how to do open source flight tracking just because Elon Musk doesn't like it. You know, we're these we're not going to you know put a you know we're not going to put a lid on what we do because it annoys powerful people the whole point of what we do is to annoy powerful people you know whether they're west or east north or south or wherever and i think the the important thing for us and the important thing for other media organizations for for activists for for anybody on twitter is to just kind of just to stand their ground and 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 hold on to their hold on to their values and not uh, not give in to the whims of of some of some tech lord who you know is throwing a hissy fit about the platform that he just bought so you've written a book about uh the azov movement and i think it was your writing was one of the first kind of ways in which i learned about um azov i think that, you know for the past year or so uh azov's become kind of been thrown in, into kind of global prominence in a way that it hasn't before uh in, in many ways it's been the kind of bogeyman of of russia and certain parts of um people that wouldn't necessarily sympathize with uh putin's war but nevertheless you know there's been a, a lot of kind of a what about these uh nazis in ukraine uh i suppose the question for you is um to what extent has russia's invasion of ukraine uh how has it impacted on Azov? Uh, and I suppose, has it changed the movement's influence uh, within Ukraine? That, that question could be a, another book and then, and, <laughs> and then yet another book on top of that. But I, I think one thing that's clear right now, what's clear right now is sort of a lack of clarity. Like we're, we're in the middle of what's still a very brutal invasion and and war in ukraine and in terms of say like offering a prediction about what the situation with the far right or with anything in ukraine is going to look like after the war i mean we've still got unfortunately i think we've still got such a long way to go but i think it's it's clear that there are factors that are likely going to aid not just the Azov movement, but other far-right elements in Ukraine. There are, there, are, there are conditions right now that, you know, that are probably going to help them, you know, after the war and, and to, to gain some relative social political prominence. It's, it's actually, frankly, some of the same factors that helped them before, the fact that they paint themselves as the preeminent defenders of the country. Uh, especially for Azov, the, the fact that the, the regiment, uh, you know, was under siege and, and defended Mariupol. You know, there is a lot of political capital that the far right can capitalize on whenever this war ends. But that's not necessarily a new story. That's frankly been the story since since 2014. How it plays out after the war, whenever that is, I think still remains to be seen. But there's still something circulating there. But I do think there is actually opportunity or occasion to push back on on that myth, on that political capital that they do and have and, and will try to exploit. I, I think it's the fact that 
the you know on the other side of the ideological spectrum that even if their numbers are much smaller there's been no shortage of anti-fascist and left-wing activists of various stripes who are also fighting for Ukraine against Russia they formed their own their own units they're they're defending the country they're the furthest thing from being pro-russian in a in a in, in a way that probably is different from 2014 2015 there's you know the, the left in ukraine has long been very marginalized but there is an opportunity for some elements within the, the left to be able to stand up and say to the far as like what do you what are you mad at us for we stood up we stood up for the country too so why why do you get all the political capital why do you get all the attention why 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 do we get called pro-russian when we took up took up arms for the country too so i think if anything that this makes the circumstances you know especially after the war it, it makes it so hard to predict is that there's there's so much that is still unknown like i said there are some factors that i think will help the far right but none of this stuff stuff is you know particularly absolute like I, I don't think it would be fair for me to sit here and say oh the far right is going to be absolutely massively buoyed and, and and helped after the war and basically take over ukraine no i'm not going to say something like that but do i think they'll be able to that, that do i think that they are in a position to benefit from from the war yes i do doesn't mean that that it's inevitable that they that they inevitably will that you know that that they will be in some greater position of power after the war. No, it's not inevitable. Um, okay, to to wrap up, people have this kind of black and white view of what's hap- of the, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You know, it's either I'm um, you know look at all these bad fascists in Ukraine and and we we can't support them, or it's like um, oh they're uh, Ukrainians are anti-imperialist, blah blah blah, all this stuff. Black, very black and white. And I think you've said that before in in, in an interview. Um, incredibly black and white yeah to it's 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 the most black and white you know I- I- issue i can think of right now but there's very little been little uh, I'll, I'll maybe i haven't seen it but there's been quite like a lacking of of talk about kind of the internal politics of russia you know obviously russia is an increasingly authoritarian state increasingly mm-hmm. nationalistic and it has been for a very long time and, and the ukrainian invasion has only intensified these processes mm-hmm. and i wondered what would how how should we th- be thinking about the Russian state as it is as it is under under Putin and, and probably how it will be after after Putin is gone, and how does that state okay, relate to nationalist independent nationalist movements and far right movements within Russia? At, at this point, I would I would say that any any far right movement or individual you know any anything related to the far right within Russia right now that is of any prominence or influence has some relationship to the state. And that obviously predates the current invasion, but it was, I think, very much intensified by, by the current invasion. There's obviously been a, there's a long, long history of, of the far right in, in post-Soviet Russia, incredibly violent far right, hundreds of lives lost in different kinds of attacks and, you know, from from very very nasty far right groups and individuals within Russia. So, but w- what 
I'm very, very, very much distilling, distilling the recent history here. But at some point in the early 2010s, or even a bit before that, Putin had tried to, I think, get some of the the far right on side. I think he realized that the far right and said, you know, ultra-nationalists, whatever label we're going to give to that whole sort of part of the political spectrum. At one point, I think he tried to, you know, to harness them, to control them. And I think he realized, or Kremlin realized that, you know, it, that's, that's not the easiest thing to do because they were such a potent force. And so in the early 2010s, uh, the Kremlin started cracking down on a lot m- more of the independent-minded, violent far-right groups. And this was going on right as you know, Maidan was happening in, in, in Ukraine in 2013, 2014. And that's why when, when Russia's first invasion of Ukraine in 2014 happened, why in 2014-15, why a, a lot of the Russian far-right, a lot, lot of prominent, relatively prominent figures on the Russian far-right why they fled Russia and went to Ukraine and have since then been on the Ukrainian side fighting against Putin as, you know, and something that might seem a contradiction to a lot of people, but it's been something perfectly, you know, perfectly compatible since 2014, 2015, both Ukrainian and some Russian far-right figures fighting side by side against Putin. That's that's how it's that's how it's worked. The situation now in Russia, again, very very Cole's notes, you know, my, my general sense is that any prominent far right group right now operating within Russia has some relationship to the state. You know, if you look at like the Russian Imperial Movement, which is, you know sends has its 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 own Imperial Legion that is fighting for the Russian side in Ukraine. You have, you know, you have like the the uh, the Rusich military unit, which is fighting as part of Wagner in eastern Ukraine and doing some absolutely vile, horrible things, allegedly, but probably actually. These, you know, these these far right guys on the Russian side, they are not freelancing. They would not they would not be doing this without some level of not necessarily oversight, but acceptance by, you know, by Russian authorities. And I think the problem with Putin, well, among many problems with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, is that he's let a lot of these ultra-nationalist genies out of the bottle in Russia. And I think it, history, if, if history has taught us anything, and if Russian history has taught us anything, that maybe those are not the kinds of forces that you want like it's not necessarily that if i think a lot of leaders a lot of people have made the mistake of thinking oh i can control these violent incredibly violent far-right thugs steeped in violence i can just control them and when things get out of hand and they feel like you've possibly betrayed them well you know reality is gonna get a bit ugly and that's one thing that i do worry about among the many things i worry about related to Ukraine and to a lesser extent Russia right now, you know, what happens, not if, but when Putin's regime falls. I mean, one, I think ethically, morally, that's a good thing. Uh, You know, I won't deny that I think the world would be better off (laughs) without Putin in power in Russia. But what happens 
who who tries to, who jumps in to try to fill that void. I think there are a mm-hmm. lot of fringe, empowered ultranationalists within Russia who might try to jockey for that space. And there are some of these far right figures from outside of Russia who might try to jump back in into the fray. So things within Russia post Putin could get uh, you know very violent in terms of well for a number of reasons, but very violent. You know, when 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 the far right is concerned, because I, I don't think any of us, you know, want seeing the, these are not people that need to be or to feel empowered in, in any way. And you know, I, I worry looking looking across the world that we you know we increasingly see far right fringe figures feeling more empowered to do and to say and to act as 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 they like. And I think within Russia if and when this sort of thing happens, it's going to get pretty ugly. Thank you. Uh, I've got so much more to ask you, but we've already kept you for an hour, yeah. and I feel like we've we've all got stuff to do today. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so have you got, like, anything? Where can people find your work? Have you got anything coming that you want to draw people's attention to or maybe just publish? Uh, yeah. I, if, you, if you're interested in, in what I do and what we do at Bellingcat, uh, I, I think, the easiest thing is bellingcat.com. You'll find everything there. Great. That was nice and simple. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, no, cool. Nothing, com- nothing complicated. No, no complicated <laughs> links. No, you know, and it's almost holidays. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not entirely in work mode anyways. I kind of forget what I do sometimes. So. Okay. Um, our housekeeping for the podcast. We are going to have another book club. It's going to be running through January. It's going to be on a book called Fractured, The Hatred of Identity Politics, which we interviewed the authors a couple of, a few episodes ago. It's a really great book. There'll be a discount from the publisher for people who are part of the book club, which I will obviously share once you've, you've expressed an interest in joining in. Um, so just look out for that official announcement in the next couple of days. Um, other than that, thank you for listening. And this is the last episode of the year. So Thank you for supporting the show and and listening again and uh, see you next year. Goodbye. Okay, great. great.